Welcome back to the Complete History of Coffee. I'm your host, Ara Zaffer. As we all know, the war in Ukraine has been very devastating, so I wanted to make this special episode about Ukrainian history. Today, we will be covering various aspects of Ukrainian history. To help with this, there will be two guest narrators on the episode to share their research with you. Our first guest, Julian Gunther, will present a brief history of Bronze Age Ukraine. Julian is finishing up his degree in history and will be working with me on some other projects we plan to present for the Complete History podcast series. Our second guest, Jay Ortmeyer, will be talking about Ukrainian film history. Jay has experience in film, especially as a cinematographer, and we have a production company in which we make short films and work on a podcast together. It was exciting getting to collaborate on this episode. Hopefully, you all enjoy. All right, so in this section of the history of Ukraine, we're going to be talking about the people who lived in Ukraine during the late Neolithic, the Bronze Age, and into the early Iron Age. Now, the first group of people are the Yamna. The Yamna people and their culture are closely connected to the final Neolithic cultures of the Ukrainian area, and they would later spread throughout Europe and Central Asia. The Yamna were part of a greater collection of tribes who did the same sort of thing. They were part of the same culture. Now, this culture is called catacomb culture. We're going to spend a good amount of time talking about that later on, but for now, we're going to say they were part of the catacomb culture. Now, what's really cool about the Yamna is they have been identified as being Proto-Indo-European, and the area the Yamna come from has also been identified as the homeland of the Proto-Indo-European language. Now, this is huge because the Proto-Indo-European language goes on across into the southern ends of the Middle East and into the north and west areas of Europe. This language then develops in areas such as Greece, Italy, India, the Middle East, Asia Minor, now known as Turkey, and into the Savant. Now, this migration of the Proto-Indo-European language creates what we now know as Indo-European, the common ancestor for many languages that are spoken around the world today. So it's just crazy to think about how this area in Ukraine is one of the supposed spots of the origin of all these different languages that are now spoken around the world. Now, as promised, we're going to move back to the culture of the Yamna, especially what we call the catacomb culture. So these people, when they died, were typically buried in a flexed position on the right side. They were often accompanied by ornaments, such as silver rings, weapons, stone or metal axes, arrows, daggers, maces, basically anything that your typical Yamna would need to fight a war in the afterlife. As far as we know, there would usually be an area at the foot of the grave, like a little hole, that they would be able to put these ornaments and weapons in for the deceased to have in their afterlife. We also know when they bury their dead, there would also be some form of an animal sacrifice that would go with it. And usually the head and hooves of goats, sheep, horses, cattle, or really any kind of livestock that they had around them. And this occurred in about... 16 to 20% of the catacomb graves found at this point. And one of the things that's been interesting about these finds is cattle sacrifices 
and were much more prominent in the graves of the Yamna people. I say that because, yes, the catacombs were the sort of burial that the Yamna people used, but it also had very strong prominence in other areas of the world. So if we look into other parts of Eastern Europe, we can find a lot of Bronze Age catacomb grave sites. So for instance, Mycenaean Greece is one of the major spots for that. But moving forward, from the archaeological records we have of the catacomb culture, we can see that it expanded out of western Ukraine, where the Yamna people had resided. If we move forward a little bit through the Bronze Age, and especially into the early Iron Age, we can see that the people of this western area of Ukraine did tend to expand westward because we can find genetic similarities of people from western Ukraine and people in places like Mycenaean Greece, Italy, or even into the lower regions of eastern Europe around Bulgaria, Romania, and further into the Baltic region. This tells us that some culture from Bronze Age Ukraine ended up migrating westward further into Eastern Europe and over into more of the Central European area, especially down towards the Mediterranean. Now, why does this matter to you? I know I'm over here talking about all these random people that you probably have never heard of before. Well, some of this does matter a lot. Because if we look at some of the people I had mentioned earlier, for instance, the Mycenaean Greeks, the Mycenaean Greeks are the people who were the powerhouse of Greece and the greater Aegean area right after the Minoans. And if we look at the works of literature from Homer and Virgil, who are writing stories about people who were existing in this time period, people like Odysseus and Aeneas, these people were Mycenaeans, or people who were coexisting in the surrounding areas with the Mycenaeans. Now, if we move further into the Iron Age, we're going to see a lot of change happening here. So one of the biggest things that happened was you had these tribes of people in Ukraine. They started to unite and create these sorts of unions. And one of the unions that we had was called the Antes Union. And this union was very strong, just full of all these different Western Ukrainian tribes. The Antis Union was very strong, and we have records that show that it was actually in existence through the entire Iron Age and into the early medieval period when it was abruptly broken up by an outside force in 602 A.D., now, this outside force that I'm talking about were called the Avar, and the Avar actually would later become the Russians. So what ended up happening was the Russians invaded this union and ended up breaking it up. What we do know is that the tribes that made up this union actually survived many years, and many of them actually continued separately from each other existing well into the beginning of the second millennium CE. All right, Eris, back to you. Today we'll be talking about the history of coffee and tea in 18th century Ukraine. So as a heads up, this episode will skip ahead a little in our narrative, but we will still cover coffee's history in Ukraine in future in more depth. I will not be talking about the science of coffee or doing a coffee pairing today as this collaborative episode is already shaping up to be a rather long episode, but I hope you guys enjoy. 
During the 18th century in Ukraine, tea was consumed by the upper class in tea ceremonies. While documentation of tea and coffee consumption is very limited, we do know it occurred from examples of teapots and trays used for serving tea and coffee. Among the clergy, finely crafted trays of gold, silver, and copper were produced and often adorned with flower inlays. We also have records of tablecloths and napkins for tea time. Based on these items, as well as a demand for porcelain teacups, we see widespread consumption of tea by high-ranking monks. Ukraine at this time acted as a point of transit for tea, being imported west into other parts of Europe from Russia. Meaning, we know tea was accessible and consumed in Ukraine as a result. However, the Ukrainian church had much contact and influence from Russia as early as the 17th century, which could indicate tea culture had already been introduced, but based on a lack of evidence, this is unlikely. During the 18th century, we see tea served to guests who visited a monastery, especially on feast days, like that of St. George the Martyr. On a side note, St. George Day is April 23rd and is the traditionally accepted day of William Shakespeare's birth, and was consequently also the day he died at the age of 52. So important was the preparation of tea that a high-ranking clergyman in 1751 had two of his three servants focused on preparing tea, while only one attended to him personally. Green tea was commonly bought by the church elite of Kiev, often purchasing Zulon, an uncompressed high-quality green tea from China. In fact, low-quality compressed tea was uncommon among the high-ranking clergy in Ukraine. Coffee, by contrast, was less popular with Ukraine's clergy, but was still consumed and even preferred by some. There are a few examples of coffee mills, but plenty of examples of mortars and pestles. Russia at this time is using mortars to grind coffee, mixing it with boiled water, and then adding milk and sugar. So while we have no specific account of mortars being used for coffee in Ukraine, we can't assume this to be a likely case scenario, especially because we know coffee was in fact roasted in Ukraine, and some were buying milk and sugar. In any case, we know Ukrainian Cossack officers consumed coffee and tea as early as the 1720s. Even earlier in 1717, there were shipments of coffee sent to Little Russia from Turkey and Poland, Little Russia referring to Ukraine. Coffee culture became so common that the word coffee, spelled K-O-F-E, is used to denote a color similar to the drink, with cloths being referred to as coffee-colored. Coffee and tea, as well as utensils used to make them, were typically purchased by individual clergy rather than by the monastery. St. Cyril's Monastery was one exception, ordering an average of one pound of coffee a month for the abbot between 1779 and 1780. This puts the average amount of coffee used by the abbot at about two teaspoons of coffee per day, with the serving size for this time in Ukraine being around one teaspoon per serving. So either the abbot had two cups of coffee a day, or, more likely, he was sharing his coffee with guests at the monastery, as seen by the inconsistent amount of coffee ordered every few months. I don't want to dive too deep into the consumption of wine, but it is an interesting comparison to tea and coffee consumption by the Ukrainian elite from this period. Wine was commonly consumed by the clergy and offered to colleagues and guests. It was often from Romania and France, and while we don't have clear evidence of coffee or tea causing caffeine addiction, we do have evidence of alcohol addiction from wine by the clergy. 
If anyone is wondering why so far we've only mentioned the upper class of society in regards to consumption of tea, coffee, and wine, it is because these were the only people, in general, who could afford them. But did education also play a role? Did these well-educated upper-class folk, especially those of the educated clergy, know the health benefits of these drinks and use them, at least in part, for these reasons? Like tea, people in Russia, even before this time, believed coffee aided in digestion, as well as other health benefits such as helping with headaches and preventing sleep. There is validity to these supposed health benefits, with coffee being shown to aid in digestion and the caffeine from coffee helping some with headaches and most with tiredness. These health benefits were seen more so in Russia, however, and in fact, Ukrainian medical books at the time didn't mention much about coffee or tea at all. This is even more interesting when comparing medical texts of the 17th and 18th century in Western Europe, which talks specifically about coffee and tea as herbal remedies. This does not mean that there was no mention at all, however, as coffee was stated by some Ukrainian physicians to be able to cure things such as back pain, runny noses, and clear bodily fluids. Tea was likewise used by Ukrainian physicians to drain bodily fluids, but specifically that of sweat, rather than other bodily fluids like urine, as coffee was used for. Which makes sense, because coffee is a diuretic, and hot liquids, such as tea, heat the body's core temperature and make a person sweat more. Tea was also mentioned as a remedy for toothaches, as well as a drink which could be mixed with other herbs and animal blood to produce certain cures. Coffee is also cited as a remedy for overconsumption of alcohol, or today as we know it, a hangover, which many still attempt to cure with a cup of coffee. So it seems plausible that there was a couple of alcoholic monks using coffee as a hangover cure after going too hard on wine the night before. Jesus, we love you! As for the high cost of the beverage, tea and wine were very expensive products, especially wine. However, coffee was not all that cheap, even more so if someone wanted cream and sugar with it. Coffee was cheaper than tea, due in part to trade relations with China and also as a result of import taxes, with coffee costing far less to import into Ukraine. This trend is seen beginning in the 1720s and continues into 1731, when tea was one of the most highly taxed imports. By 1754, tea was cheaper to import, but coffee by this point had no tariffs on it at all. Tea requires less dry goods than coffee to make a cup. Yet the high tax to import it still made it a more expensive drink. It was also more expensive to drink tea based on the price of dishware needed to make it. During this time, it would have cost at least one and a half rubles for even the cheapest copper kettle, porcelain teapot, copper tea caddies and sugar bowl, straining spoon, and porcelain cup. Coffee was cheaper to make by comparison, costing around 70 kopecks for a coffee pot, grinder, and sugar bowl. Now for any of you wondering what any of those figures actually mean, 100 kopecks equals 1 ruble, which would mean teaware was more than twice as expensive. For further comparison of the time, it cost around 3 rubles to buy a horse. In today's money, that would be around 33 US dollars for the supplies to make tea, and around 16 dollars for the supplies to make coffee. Also keep in mind, tea was more expensive to purchase than coffee. As a result, tea became a popular gift for socialites to exchange with people both in Ukraine and in other countries. Coffee was less common of a gift, yet 
In a letter from 1761, we see a Russian diplomat by the name of Bakomi request, quote, an oka of coffee sent by me, end quote. This is odd, as he sent the letter to Kiev while stationed in Istanbul by the Russian court. It begs the question of why he couldn't have obtained coffee locally and from Istanbul, an area with clear access to coffee. While there were periodic bans of coffee by the Ottoman Empire in the earlier period of coffee's history, often directed at coffee houses, it may have still been taboo to consume. More likely, however, the Russian official may simply have wished to receive a gift of coffee, as this would have been more special than simply buying it himself. I think many of us can agree it's nice to receive gifts at times, even if it's something we could easily obtain ourselves. However, there is one other possibility. As we see in a letter by a man to his son in 1775, requesting he send him coffee because, quote, coffee is becoming depleted, end quote. So perhaps one other alternative here is there was a lack of coffee available in Istanbul at the time. But this does not correlate with the growing coffee culture we see in the historical record at this time. Around 1772 or 73, there was a Kievan monk who worked at the monasteries and one of his jobs was restocking vodka, wine, tea, and coffee, leading some to assume coffee and tea were beginning to spread from monastic use to that of secular. We can further surmise this from a man in Turkey who began selling coffee in the mid-1760s. He moved to Nizan, a town in Ukraine, in 1759, quote, and sells boiled beans, end quote. Now anyone could set up shop, so this alone doesn't tell us how much coffee had expanded into secular society. However, his business did well from what we can see, being able to support his wife, three children, and even his sister-in-law from coffee sales. By the 1780s, Nizan would grow a love for coffee and tea, supporting 14 coffee houses. It is interesting the parallels of coffee as a drink for the clergy in Ukraine, like that of Sufi monks in the Islamic world. However, tea certainly took off as the primary drink of Ukraine's monks, and it would be some time before coffee became a popular drink in Ukraine. Now to Jay for Ukrainian film history. Ukraine has produced many esteemed talents, including actors, actresses, models, and filmmakers since the beginning of cinema and has flourished since the 1930s until now. The history of Ukrainian cinema was often thought to be somewhat debatable due to its influential tug-of-war between Russia and the rest of Western Europe for the attention of Ukrainian audiences. Nonetheless, the film industry of Ukraine has flourished and produced some very notable artists that have created amazing works of cinema. Some of Ukraine's most notable actors include Mila Kunis, who we all know played Jackie on That 70s Show, and she has now given us countless amazing performances in many films and TV shows over the past two decades. Mila was born in the Ukrainian SSR in the city that I cannot pronounce. Her family saw no future for Mila in the Soviet Union, so they moved to Los Angeles when she was seven years old, and her acting career blossomed. This also seems to be the case for many other Ukrainian immigrants, who with a combination of luck and talent during a risky family move from the Soviet territory to the sunny beaches of Southern California, were able to break into the Hollywood scene. Mila Jovovich is another Ukrainian-born megastar, born in the city of Kiev, Ukraine, in the former Soviet Union. 
She has cultivated decades of impressive performances with Resident Evil, The Fifth Element, Zoolander, one of my personal favorites, and a long list of impressive films that I could just go on and on about. Also born in the Ukrainian SSR, Olga Kurilenko is a Ukrainian-French actress as well as successful model. Aside from modeling in Victoria's Secret catalogs and many other major brands, she has starred in hit films such as Hitman, Oblivion, and Black Widow. One Ukrainian director is definitely worth praise and notoriety, not only for his artistic accomplishments, but for his service in Ukraine's territorial defense forces in the current fight against the Russian invasion. Filmmaker, writer, and activist Oleg Sentov has faced a hard journey after being imprisoned and falsely accused of terrorism by Russia immediately following the annexation of Crimea in 2014. After directing successful feature films such as Gamer and Rhino, today Oleg is actually on the front lines of the brutal Russian assault. And while he is defending his country, he has brought cameras with him to document his experience during the siege. Please feel free to find Oleg and others on social media to see what they are working on. And we also hope you feel inclined to show some love to more Ukrainian filmmakers, actors, and musicians. Thank you for listening to our special episode. The song at the beginning was created by Julian and myself using a Ukrainian Dorian scale. For more music by Julian and myself, check out our band Seven Days Rest on any major platform. If you want more from Jay and I, then definitely check out the Garden Shed podcast for world news, topics in pop culture, reviews of our favorite films and videos, and more. If you want more collaborative episodes like this, then head over to our social media pages by searching for the Complete History Podcast Series. Please consider donating to our Patreon, as I'm thrilled to announce all Patreon support for this month will be donated to support Ukraine. Thank you for listening. To close out this episode, here's a preview of the song Bezomord, which will be released soon on all platforms. Enjoy. <laughs>